Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. What would it be like to be blind, either from birth or shortly after birth, maybe through an accident, to be blind for a number of years and then to receive your eyesight? Well, actually, we have some insight into that because researchers in the last 20 years or so have made great strides and they are sometimes able to restore sight, depending on what the cause of the the, you know, the blindness is, but to restore sight. But here's what you discover is that when they restore sight, that's only the beginning of the solution. Because people who have been blind, who get their sight, then have to learn how to see. Because they're seeing things that they have no way to make sense of. Right? Because they've never seen it before. Like a you know, baby who just grows up and sees and sees and learns and interprets. I mean, they, it talks about people seeing things and not sure what they are. Uh, even learning you know, what expressions are. And it takes a number of times. But over the years, over a number of years, they discover that, that most people who have their sight restored can relearn. They can learn to interpret. And so their vision is pretty much the way ours would be. But it's a process. I want to say to you that when, when we come to receive Christ as Savior, when we, we realize that we've sinned against a holy God and, and we believe that Jesus is his son and he died for us and as Melanie talked about, rose again from the dead and that if we will place our faith in him and receive Jesus as Savior, that he forgives every sin and gives us eternal life and comes into our lives and, and begins making good and positive changes, that it, it's like one, the moment before we make that decision, we can't really see things the way they are from God's perspective, right? The way they really are. That, but that moment we, we, we are saved, we in essence receive our spiritual sight. All of a sudden now we've received sight in a way that we never had before. But just like a person who gets their eyesight restored doesn't... Everything they're seeing doesn't make sense to them, and they have to learn and grow. That's the way it is with us as Christians. We've received the ability to see, but we have to learn to make sense of it and understand it and see how it applies in our lives. And so as we're talking about living lives that are worth living, a life that will withstand the judgment seat of Christ, will endure through that, and that where we are, we're living a life that's satisfying and meaningful now, it is essential that we come to see things with our spiritual eyesight. And that that comes into focus and becomes clear to us, that we see things the way they really are the way, way God has given us that perspective, the way God says that they are. And by the way, the way God sees things is the way they really are. You know, he never gets it wrong. And so we can more and more learn to see that. And so it, it takes time. And so in this sermon series, we're talking about things in our lives that, that, that we just need to really have settled. 
And this is one of those things. What we discover is that when we get, all of a sudden we have been saved. I once, and this is spiritually speaking, I once was blind, but now I what? Now all of a sudden I can see, but I don't, that all make sense to me. I don't know it all. Lots of things I got to learn. That the, that's a process that needs to happen. And, and some of the research that's been done, they found some people who, based on their situations and when they got their eyesight received, uh, received, they never really learned to use it. And they felt it was almost detrimental to them because they learned how to be blind. And so as Christians, we can do this. If, if we must grow in this. We must grow in seeing things the way God says they are and looking at all of life that way to, tell, starts to make sense to us. We must grow. And, but God has given us the perfect resource for that in his word. And so we want to talk today about his word and, and, and uh, how it needs to be this part of our life that's just settled if we're going to live a life that is worth living. And so what we want to do today is look at three questions, answer three big questions, okay? And the first of those, go ahead, uh, Go ahead and one more. Thank you. Is our Bible the same as what was originally written? See, in our culture, because what I want to do is address some issues that arise in our culture. And, and they will say, well, we don't have what was originally written, right? It's been changed so many times over the years. And, and how do we know and all that kind of stuff? And so we want to talk about that question a little bit today, answer it. And then secondly, is our Bible more than just a book of ideas written down by fallible human beings? In other words, yeah, there's lots of neat stuff there, but it's just like any other book you would read. Is that the case? We want to address that. And then what role should the Bible have in our lives? Okay, so let's take our Bibles and turn to Second uh, Peter chapter one. As we talk about the Bible being the perfect resource for us, see what. Peter says here, 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse number 2. We're on page 1395 in the Bibles that are in the chairs there. So if you need a Bible, we encourage you to grab one of those, pick it up, and follow along, page 1395. Starting in verse 2 of chapter 1, he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So knowing God, knowing Jesus. And then I would also say in their knowledge, learning to know what they know. Then it says, as his divine powers, God's divine power has given to us, what's the next two words? All things. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All right, so everything we need to know to have to receive eternal life, God has provided, hasn't he? He's provided, it's all provided in Jesus. Everything that we need to know to live a life that is the Christian life, the kind of life that God wants us to live, and the kind of life that we've said is going to be that which blesses us, the kind of life that's going to be worth having lived, He has given this. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's how do we live lives that please God? How do we live lives that, 
that begin to show God, where, where we begin to live in ways that people can see God, right? So God has given us everything, all things that we need that pertain to that kind of life and that kind of godliness. Is anything missing? He's given us what? All things, okay. Now, how do we know what those all things are? How do we know how those all things apply? How do we uh, understand how to see what those things are and how to experience them, all that? He goes on, he continues. He says, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So first of all, through knowing Christ, through having that personal relationship with him, starts there. But again, I want to say to you that it is not, I don't think, this isn't just about knowing him, it's about his knowledge. What does he know? What does Christ know? Okay, so all things that pertain to, to a life in Godliness is about having a relationship with him and then what he knows that we need to know. Okay, and then he goes on, he says, by which, this knowledge, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Now, if I went around today and said, tell us what are some of the promises of God, you'd be able to come up with a whole bunch of promises of God. And I would say, well, how do you know that? And what would you say? Because his word tells me. His word tells me specifically what the promises are. The word tells me how to, to uh, experience those things. The word tells me what I'm supposed to do with them. It's the word. Great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature so that, that more and more we would be like Christ. More and more we would think like the Lord. More and more we would make the kind of decisions the Lord would make in our situation. More and more he can be seen in us and through us, partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. That happened when we got saved and then it repeatedly happens as we live the Christian life, that we've been delivered from that. But it's through the word. When he said he's giving us all things, that absolutely includes the word. That's not only the word, because the Lord comes to live within us, right? We have the Holy Spirit, we have the brothers and sisters in Christ. But where do you learn that? Where do you learn that? Where do you learn that you have the Lord? In his word. Where do you learn about the body of Christ? In his word. You see what I'm saying? It all goes back. This is, we cannot live a life that is worth living without settling what the word of God is and what it's supposed to be in our lives, okay? Now, in our culture, like I said, there's opposition to this because who knows what you have heard, what I've heard, what the world around you has heard, and those three questions. Is our Bible what was originally written? Uh, is our Bible more than just a book of ideas written down by fallible human beings? And then what role should the Bible have in our lives? So let's just jump into that first question. Is our Bible the same as what was originally written? Okay, so how did we get the Bible? That's important to understand. And we're going to talk about part, some other things related to that in a little bit. But the way we got the Bible is that God moved people to write. Okay? He had them record the things that were happening. He had them record his perspective. We're going to talk more about inspiration in a little bit. But what you see is that he had, had people write. 
And, and so just so you know, the Old Testament, I'm not going to talk a lot about the Old Testament today because it's really never been in doubt that that is what was written, okay? Um, it's interesting. We were in, in Jerusalem, uh, Glenda and I, and uh, Amber was in there, right? You went with us? No. Did you go with us? You did, yeah, okay. 66-year-old brain on display. Okay. Um, <laughs> We were in, in Jerusalem at the, the uh, museum of there, and they had a little, like a medallion kind of thing that was dated from the time of King David. That's a thousand years before Christ. And it had a passage, some blessing, I think from the book of Numbers, I can't remember for sure, but a blessing that came from the book of Numbers, and you open up your Bible and you read this, and you read that, and they're exactly the same. You know, I mean, so it's settled. That's, it's, there's no problems with that. The, the questions would be more about the New Testament. So in the New Testament, we have these guys who wrote the stories of Jesus. We call those the Gospels. So they wrote those things. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote a bunch of letters. James wrote a letter. John wrote some letters. Uh, Paul, I mean, uh, Peter wrote some letters. Jude. Uh, so we have all these writings. So how do we know that they're what we're supposed to have? Well, so... What people will say is, well, a bunch of church people got together and made the Bible, right? Years, hundreds of years after. That's not the case. What we find from the very beginning, within the first decades of this, is that um, church leaders, Christians, pastors, were beginning to accumulate these things. Wow, there's a a gospel by Mark, and they accumulated that, and, and someone, you know, eventually they got John and added this to list, and they had these gospels, and then they had letters from the Apostle Paul, and, and uh, some of these people, some of these early church fathers knew the, the apostles. They knew like John, and so they talk about, yes, he wrote a letter, and those who would have known Paul, and so we had this verification within the first few decades of these things being written, Okay? And so they began to gather them. And, and slowly but surely they gathered them. And because these letters were written to there and to there and to there, and there was no internet, right? If, if Paul wrote a letter and, and carried it someplace 500 miles that direction, where's that letter? It's over there somewhere, isn't it? Okay. So what they did is they started to make copies of those letters so they could share them in other places and began making more and more copies of those things. And so the idea is that different places sometimes had letters and it took time for those letters to get copied and get distributed other places, all right? And so um, what the, the church consistently did, and by the church I mean you know, the Christians and the, the, who would gather from different areas and talk about it, and they would come and say, what, what, what uh, letters do you have? And then they would share them with them. And they said, well, here's ones we have that you don't have. And so slowly but surely, these all begin to get compiled, okay? And, and there are, the, the word canon, okay? It doesn't mean like canon, like boom. <laughs> this word canon is literally the idea of a measuring read. It's, that, it's how do we evaluate things? And so we talk about the canon of the Bible. It's how was, how was the evaluation made that these books are supposed to be in the Bible, okay? And that's what they did. They applied some tests. They did these kind of tests. Uh, you know, uh, first one is, well, I mean, I know them, but I don't want to leave any out here. Hang on a second. That's right. So in the New Testament, they would ask this question, does this book or this letter, was it written by an apostle? 
or by somebody who was closely connected to an apostle. Okay, so Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew. He was an apostle. John was an apostle. He wrote the book of John. Mark was not an apostle, but Mark was with Peter. And Peter, most likely Mark contains Peter's recollections of all these things. He was closely connected, so we have Peter. Luke was closely connected to the apostle Paul, okay? And so, do they have a connection? So these letters, and, and uh, were they written by apostles or by someone closely connected to an apostle? Was the book being accepted by the body of Christ at large? In other words, was, does this book have, or this letter have acceptance? That, yeah, this is from Paul, or this is from Peter. And it's largely accepted, and it's well known that that's the case, okay? It's verified like that. Uh, and then, did the book contain consistency of doctrine and orthodox teaching, or did it, did it stay true to who Jesus was and, and you know, teach the things that were consistent with what Jesus had taught. And say, so that if, if some book came along and said, oh, you, in order to be saved, you have to get baptized and you have to give money and you have to do good works, they would say, oh, no, no, this, was, this is not legit, you see? So um, one other thing. And did the book bear evidence? Did it just, you know, have that, this is from God. And so in the final, what we call the final canon, uh, happened in 393. That's 300 years after the time of Christ. Like I said, there were canons and growing and growing. But by then, they established. They did not say, oh, we're going to make these books be scripture. What they said is, based on what we can see and know, these things are scripture. You see what I'm saying? And they acknowledged them as such. And that's where we get our 27 books of the New Testament. And the Apocrypha was never included in that by the Jews or by the early Christians, okay? So our Old Testament and 27 books of the New Testament, that's how we got it. So from the very beginning, they were looking and evaluating. It wasn't like a free-for-all, all all these things. I mean, many things are written, but they didn't all make the Bible, did they? And it's because they, they were very careful of looking and evaluating. And I think we can trust God that he has provided us with his word, okay? The canon. Um, And then, let me see, where do I want to say this? The idea of preservation in, um, go ahead, put it up there if you would. Psalm 12 says, the words of the Lord are pure words like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. And so God is saying, I'm going to preserve my word. I'm going to make sure that my word endures. It's not going to disappear. Okay? And so we have the canon and we have the preservation. And when we think of the preservation, it it really becomes evident in the New Testament to us. Because if you were a historian of ancient documents, and so you go back and you look at the writings of Homer, Okay? You go back and look at the writings of Plato or Aristotle, and you go back that, and you're going to go back and say, okay, you know, what's the earliest copies we have, and what do we know about it, and how does that fit? And, and what we discover is that, that most of those copies are hundreds and hundreds of years old, and we don't have a lot of info earlier than that validating those things. And, and copies, sometimes it's 8, 10 copies, sometimes it's 100 copies or 300 copies, okay? When they go to the New Testament, they discover that 
Our earliest actual physical copies are, are about 300 years. Well, actually, there is a piece of a copy that dates back to within about 20, 30 years. It's about this big. And it's written on the front and back. It's from the Gospel of John. And you know, when you read what, I, I don't remember the passage now, but when you read what was written there and you read our Bibles, guess what? The same. So within just a few decades, we have pieces of copies that say, see, it was written, it, it really was written back then, okay? It, and so they have thousands and thousands of copies, like over 20,000 ancient copies and portions, portions of scripture, like 5,000 complete copies. I mean, there's no comparison. If, if you throw out the New Testament, you have to throw out every ancient document because the New Testament is so well attested to, okay? Now, so we have what was originally written there, and then we have uh, th these people who were claimed to be eyewitnesses, and people who knew them said they were eyewitnesses, okay? Not only that, they were willing to die for what they had written. They wouldn't recant, no, I saw it, Jesus is alive. I was there, I saw it, I know it, okay? So they were willing to, to die for that. Um, and there is historically verifiable evidence outside of the New Testament. Archaeological evidence, other writers who wrote that, yes, these, these people here, and they said that they're, this person you know, lived and died and rose again. I mean, it's all there. And so... We have reason to believe, very strong reason, even if we weren't Christians, okay? We just set that aside. If we weren't Christians, we have very strong reason to believe that the New Testament records history and that it is reliable. Now, once you settle that, well, that means Jesus rose from the dead. What do you do with that? Everybody see what I'm saying? Okay, so we have all of these historical, logical reasons to uh, accept that what we have is what was originally written. And God has preserved it um, in spite of opposition. There have been plenty of attempts in history to rid the world of Scripture. Never works, right? God isn't going to allow it to work. All right, so do we have what was originally written? Yes, we do. Okay, it's reliable. So now we want to know, is our Bible more than just a book of ideas written down by fallible human beings? Well, we're talking here about what the Bible calls the doctrine of inspiration. I mean, it doesn't actually say the doctrine of inspiration, but it calls it inspiration. Okay, so here's a definition of inspiration. The Holy Spirit guided the authors of Scripture, leading them to write what he wanted them to write, Preventing them from writing anything else. I don't mean no other time. I mean while they're writing scripture. Utilizing their personalities, their vocabularies, and the context in which they were writing. Okay, so this is what God did. This is how he, he uh, led us to have the scriptures. And, and Peter talks about it like this. He says that scripture never came by the will of man. Or this wasn't just something... Somebody decided to write and had their own ideas. It never came by the will of, of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's just pretty clear, right? The Holy Spirit moved them to write. And, and 
I mean, if one of the big objections I've heard when I talk to people is, well, there's no way it could be infallible because what do we know about human beings? What do we know about human beings? Every human being is fallible. People make mistakes. Okay, that's all well and good. But if there is a God who created this universe, okay, and if there's a God who raised Jesus from the dead, and Jesus was, you know, the son, if that's true, is getting someone to write down what you want too hard for God? No, see, so he can overcome that, can't he? Okay? And so that's not really a, a, a logical argument once we let God into the picture, as if we can let God into the picture, but you know what I mean, when we allow the consideration of him. Okay, so this kind of inspiration, the, the, what we've come to talk about, Bible-believing people call it verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal means the words themselves, and plenary means all of them together, okay? And scripture kind of gives us this view, and in the book of Proverbs it says, go ahead, every word of God is pure. So as they wrote each of the words that they wrote, that's what the Spirit led them to write, to write that word, to choose that word as opposed to the other. By the way, that's why sometimes when we're talking and we read scripture and I go, hey, let's see what this word means, right? Let's talk, why? Because the Holy Spirit led in the choice of that word word, okay? Not just the individual words, but all of them together. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. So let's, let's talk about this. All scripture being given by inspiration of God. Um, let's talk about what Jesus believed. Jesus believed the Old Testament was given by God. He talks about it that way. The Spirit says, he says this, and he quotes Old Testament scripture. So Jesus believed the Old Testament and he promised the new. Now you show you what he talked about. He's talking to his disciples in John 14 and he says this. He says, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So are we trusting only in the apostles' memory? No, we're trusting that the Holy Spirit brought to mind what they need to remember. Think, right here, the second half of this, our Great Commission, teach, teach them to observe all the commands I have given you. Well, guess what? The Holy Spirit led the writers to write what we need to know. Okay, it wasn't their fault to human memory. This was the Holy Spirit-enabled memory. So Jesus believed that. Uh, the Apostle Paul says this about Luke. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says, for the scripture says the laborer is worthy of his wages. You say, okay, well, wait a minute, what's the deal here? Well, what's interesting is that um, what I left out up here is a quote from Deuteronomy. It says, the scripture says this, and he quotes from Deuteronomy, and then he says that the laborer is worthy of his wages. That's what Luke said. He quoted Jesus. And Paul calls it what? Scripture. Paul calls Luke's writings scripture. Okay? So the Apostle Paul believes. Apostle Paul about his own writings. He's he, talking in Thessalonians, he's talking about his preaching, but he says, when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, the word of God. Then he said, my preaching, it was the word of God to you. 
You welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So he's, he's equating his teaching, his writing with the word of God. The apostle Peter says this. He, he talks about Paul's writings. And he says, Paul's epistles. Epistle means letters, okay? Paul's letters. And then he says also, the rest of the scriptures. So what is he, what's he done with Paul's letters? He's including them as scripture, okay? So this is the way the Bible presents it. It's not just man's ideas. These ideas are from God. Well, here's a question for you, and I think one of the things that leads to confusion in our day, and that's, well, what about the Bible translations? They would say, well, you can go by so many different versions. How do you know which one's right? Well, let's, let's talk about that a little bit, okay? Let's talk about Bible translation. So here's... Sort of an idea to help you understand Bible translations. On the far left there, we have the original. What was originally written in whatever language it was written in. New Testament in Greek. Then we have an approach to translation that's called strict equivalence. And this is where you try to translate as much as possible word for word. Now, how many of you have ever took Spanish? You may not remember much of what you said, what you learned, right? But uh, it, you... <laughs> If you're gonna say the black dog, we're in English, in Spanish, what order are you gonna say it in? The dog black. Okay, so these translation word for word do sometimes change the order of the words a little bit, but they try to follow as much as possible word for word in the order that they're given in, in a way that makes sense in English. Okay, strict equivalence. The New American Standard Bible, the English Standard Version, the New King James Versions are examples of this. And then there's what's called dynamic equivalence, and this is where they're trying to translate thought for thought. They're saying, if you know, Paul was writing this in our language today, in our culture, how would he say this? So they're trying to capture that thought and put it into this thought. That's what the New International Version is, and that's what the New Living Translation is. Now, understand that is a step removed from the inspiration, right? Because what do we say? The words themselves, right? I say a step away. I know it's just it's stepping back, but there's a, an attempt to actually capture what did God say? Okay, and so translate it that way. And then there are paraphrases, okay? Paraphrases where someone just puts it in their own words, all right? It's, it's not, you might not technically call it scripture, but I think there's a value in it, okay? Uh, and so we have the Living Bible and the Message are good examples of a prayer phrase where the, the New Testament is being reworded. Let me share with you um, examples of these things. So the strict equivalence, word for word. Uh, the New King James says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, we know that. The New Living Translation, which is uh, a dynamic equivalence, he says, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So an attempt to capture the thoughts, not ignoring the words, but capture the thoughts and try to communicate them clearly, okay? Now, the message says, this is how much God loved the world. He gave his, son, gave his son, his one and only son. And this is why. So that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. Now, we see, right, that's somebody trying to put it in their own words. 
But I want to ask you, where is the problem of, well, which version is right? Did we get the same thing from all three of them? Yeah. Okay. There is no problem. Translations are not a problem. If, what I would suggest to you is any major translation, any major translation, if you will pick it up, read it, and live by it, you're going to do well. Okay? We don't have a problem with what God has said. Well, really, the problem is that we have a problem with what God said. Right? But we don't have a problem with the fact that he said it. It's settled, okay? It, it really is settled. And so when we think about this, uh, does the, do the translations, are they also inspired then? Well, not exactly in the same way, but, but let's, let's consider what the word says about this. I mean, about the, what the word is. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. But the word of God is alive. When in John chapter 6, the people were tripping all over Jesus' words because of what he, he was talking about, needing to eat his flesh and drink his blood, which we know symbolic for good reason. But he says to them, they're all worked up over and they're leaving because of it. And he says, the words that I speak unto you, they are life and they are spirit. They are living words. They are spiritual words. And I want you to understand that means they are not bound to one language. They're not bound to one language. They're alive. You translate from one language to another language and you do a good job of translating, it's still alive because God is behind it, isn't he? So then uh, Ephesians 6, 17 says, it talks about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In other words, it's God's weapon. Uh, in James chapter one, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls and save your souls. He isn't talking about getting saved and going to heaven. That's why I said it. He means save your soul from the mess that sin has created. Save you from that. Isaiah 55 uh, the Lord says, my word shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing which I sent it. God's word is effective. God's word makes a difference. We included the word of God in every bag of groceries that went out of the building. Will God use it? It's not a trick question. Will God use it? Yeah, he will. We don't know necessarily how or where or when or but he's going to use it. It will not return to him void. It's powerful. And, and then Jesus said, talking to his father for us, he says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So does that apply to the translations? Yes, I would say this to you, that any accurate translation is the equivalent of the original writings. And so this idea of inspiration applies to them. So we can be confident that what do we have? We have a Bible that are the words that God wanted us to learn. The truths that God wanted us to learn. The stories that God wanted us to understand. This is, this is precious. Whereby given to us, Peter said, exceeding great and precious promises. So be confident 
You have the word of God. Do not let this culture around you shake your faith in that. Not to mention, if you've been saved for any length of time and in the word, you know that the word of God is alive and works in you, right? Which brings us to that final question. What role should the Bible have in our lives? Well, I want to go back to that last passage of scripture we looked at in John 17, where Jesus praying to his father says, sanctify them, and he's talking about us. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Well, what's this word sanctify mean? Sanctify means to set apart, that we would be set apart for God, okay? That we would be holy. But it also includes the idea of be dedicated towards something or to something. And so he's praying for us that, that we would be set apart for God, holy people who are dedicated to living for him, for his glory. And, and what is the means of bringing that about? What's he say? Lord, bring this about by your what? Truth. And then, oh, by the way, the word is truth. And so this is what God is going to use to get us to be the people he wants us to be. And really, ultimately, as Christians, the people we want to be. Now, let me give you some insight here. And if you, you know, you've been saved a long time, I know all this stuff about the Bible and all this stuff. Let me just share something with you that might be new to you. It was new to me in, in the specifics of it. And as I went through this chapter, this is where Jesus is praying. He's praying for his disciples then. And he says very specifically, pray for the people who are going to believe that's us. Okay? He's praying for us. Leading up to verse 17, 12 different times, he's talking either about his relationship with God or his relationship with us or our relationship with God or all of our relationships together. Talking about relationships between God and his people. Ten times following this verse, he talks about relationship. So when he's talking about sanctifying and setting us apart for God, what is he talking about? Relationship. That our relationship with God would be what he wants it to be. That our relationship with him, our relationship with each other, our relationship with other people. And so I would say this, this uh, in answer to you, three things I want to say about what role the Bible should have in our lives. That the Bible should be at the core of all of our relationships. The word of God, the truth that's there should govern all of our relationships. Our relationship with God, our relationship with other Christians, and ultimately even our relationship with all people should all be governed by the truth of God's word, shouldn't it? But it's about relationship. And I think that that can change the way you read the word. I mean, it's, it's cool to read the word for information, right? There's an amazing amount of information there. It's good to learn things, and, right? But ultimately, you want to start thinking, wait a minute, what I'm learning here, this is about how I'm supposed to relate to God and how he relates to me. And so when I read the word of God, it's not just something, I, I read the word of God, you know, these days with, okay, God, what? I'm having a conversation with you. I'm listening to you. Speak to me through your word. What am I learning about how I'm supposed to love my brothers and sisters in Christ? What does it mean to do that? You know, when it says, don't lie to each other, right? Don't steal from each other. Sometimes it says, put up with each other. 
We're learning. It's about relationships. And really then, it tells us how we should be interacting with the world around us, doesn't it? Then say, well, it's about relationships. This is crucial, crucial, crucial. And so we need to engage with his word. It's all things that pertain to life and godliness we can find there. And we need to engage with him in it. We talked about being blind, gaining your sight, not being able to make sense of what's there. And what are you going to do? You're going to you know, go back to your old ways of thinking. All that, but eventually, what we want to do, if, if we had that happen, we'd want to know, wait, this is a face. <laughs> oh, this expression is a smile. Right? We'd want to learn those kinds of things. Well, when we get saved and we come to the Word, we don't naturally think the way God says we should think. And this world, there's two aspects to this world. There is just what is, but then there's also always a satanic push behind it that thinks differently than God. Have you noticed? Doesn't have the values that God has. Doesn't accept the standards that God sets. No, doesn't understand love the way God says it's been. None of that stuff. And it is continually conforming us, isn't it? It's continually trying to shape our thinking. It's continually doing that. Uh, and, and so this is why what Paul said, Romans 12, 2, he says, and do not be conformed to this world. And if we go back and look at the Greek grammar, the people who really know what they're talking about there, this literally conveys the idea of stop being conformed to this world. Because guess what? You are. You're continually being conformed to the world, and so we need to stop it. Don't do that. Don't let that be what's conforming you. Instead, be transformed, be changed by the renewing of your mind as you come to understand what God has said. And you're reading it with the idea of relationship with God and other Christians and, and, and the world around you. And, and we are being transformed. We're being changed as we renew our mind. And what it's going to lead to is this, that you may prove or you may know, be able to figure out what is that good an acceptable and perfect will of God. How do I live, God? What's your will in this situation? What kind of decision should I make? And you know what you end up with when you pursue this and keep after it? You end up with a life that's worth living. And this is indeed your perfect resource. And so the one thing I want to leave you with today, the thought, and because we're, Eduardo, we're not going to do Psalm 119, okay? So go to the last slide there, if you would. The last, skip down to, yeah, not that, go faster. <laughs> there we go. Get serious about getting into God's word and about getting God's word into you, Okay? And there's so much we could talk about that. And just to let you know, I'm pretty sure, I haven't settled, but I'm pretty sure that the next class I'm going to be teaching starting in a few weeks will be related to the Word of God, okay? Both the, the background, how we get to it, but then how do we also benefit from it and grow. And I really encourage you to consider taking that class with us, okay? What a perfect resource, huh? Uh, you know, every day, month, year that goes by, that I've had the word of God in my life. What can I say? Other than, I can't imagine now 
being without it. Father, thank you that you have given us your word that tells us all the things that we need to know, Lord, about how to interact with you and our brothers and sisters and the people in the world around us. And Lord, so much that we don't know, but yet you tell us what we need to know. I pray, Father, we would really be serious about engaging with it, engaging with you in it, learning from it, letting it, you changing our lives with it, being transformed by the renewing of our minds through it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.